Before we look at God's word, let us speak with him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege it is to have your word, that you are there and you are not silent, that you speak to us day by day as we look at your word and you speak to us as we look at it together as a congregation of believers. We thank you that you are here, present this morning, watching us, as two or, gather, and two or more are gathered in your name, we know that you are here with us. We pray that all that I say may be upbuilding and may be truth. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, there are many ways of getting to know about something. There are many ways of finding out about a new product or a new service and that's what the advertising industry is built upon, isn't it? They're always trying to find new ways of getting information out to people about something that they're advertising. And there's many ways that they go about this. There's uh, the postal service, of course. They, politicians love using this around election time. You constantly get this uh, mail, and it can be the same pamphlet many times, comes in the mail, and you find out about what they're all about with their, their election promises and what they're going to do for the country. And you also get junk mail this way as well, the, the regular junk mail that comes every week. Now, I'm not a, much of a fan of junk mail, but my wife, Jill, loves junk mail. She, uh, she always looks forward to junk mail arriving, and then she goes through this process, I hope she doesn't mind me telling you, but she goes through this process of ordering the junk mail catalogues according to the one she likes the most. So she'll read the one she doesn't like the most first, and then at the back she'll put the one she favours the best, that she's looking forward to reading most. And I learned very, on, uh, very early on that she does this because... I don't pay much attention to junk mail, but I don't mind looking at electronic sort of stuff, so Dick Smith, JB Hi-Fi, that kind of thing. And so I would see the stack there, and as she's reading it, and she's not reading uh, JB Hi-Fi because it's further towards the back, and so I'd pull it out, and, oh, no, 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 you're messing up the order here. I've got to put it back and wait until she's finished the lot before I have a chance to look at JB Hi-Fi or what I'm looking at. And so some people like a bit of advertising, they like to have it come along, like junk mail, but there's other advertising that we don't like so much, is there? There's things like telemarketers who ring up and uh, seem to have this endless uh, way of trying to keep you on the line. It, it is remarkable how well they do it sometimes, and so generally you end up having to cut them off and feel very rude uh, doing so. But uh, there's other ways that uh, people come along and advertise something as well as billboards, which I find uh, quite an oppressive way of advertising because sometimes uh, with television or radio, if that's the advertising medium, you can turn it off if you aren't impressed by the ad. But with billboards, you're kind of, it's in your face and, uh, and you can't sort of distract yourself from it or you can look the other way, but it's, it's very much constant there blaring away. And then, of course, you've got the most, uh, the most expensive way of advertising, I think, would be person-to-person door knocking where they come along, uh, Foxtel, uh, like doing this and electrician, uh, electrical companies, they come door to door and so they seem to think that a more personal approach by coming door to door is a way of advertising their products and quite successful. So there are many ways of finding out about something. There's many ways of finding out new information and so we see it with the early church. We see that there's this new, uh, this new message in town, there's this new gospel, this good news that's come out and it's about Jesus Christ. And we see within, in John's Gospel here how the early church first found out about Jesus Christ, how they found out that Jesus is the answer, the one that they've been looking for. And there's actually quite a few different ways that the church is advertised. 
And we see these uh, presented in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning is how did people come to know about Jesus in the beginning? How did people come to know about Jesus in the beginning? And so if you've got your Bibles there, open them up to uh, page 1050 if you've got a church Bible or John chapter 1 and we'll be looking at this passage going from verse 35 through to verse 51 on how did people come to know Jesus in the beginning. Well, the first way that we see they came to know about Jesus is through preaching. They came to find out about him through preaching and we see this in verse 35. In chapter 1, verse 35 and 36. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Here we've got John the Baptist, the well-known preacher. He's been preaching for a while, baptising people. And here he is preaching again. And he says, Look, the Lamb of God. He's preaching that Jesus is the one that you're meant to be following. He's the one who will be taking away your sins. And is this effective? Well, verse 37 When the two disciples, so John's own disciples with him, when they heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And then we see from verse 38 down that they interact with Jesus and they become Jesus' disciples. They are affected by this teaching, they follow off after Jesus and become his disciples. And so we see the importance of preaching there. Preaching was important with the beginning of the church and it it has been important throughout all of church history. Preaching is one of those things that is greatly used by God and particularly at different times in church history it's been used immensely by God. That there's been God stirring up this great appetite for preaching that people love to hear a man preach about Jesus and the good news of Jesus Christ. And this has happened where thousands of people have flocked to hear one preacher. Before there were microphones, they would go along and strain their ears to hear this preacher. There's so many good stories in church history about preaching where uh, a marvellous preacher has come along and he's preaching in this church and people can't get into the building. It's so packed out. And so people outside pay, they say, oh, we'll pay to break a window so we can hear the message come through the window. So they break the window and then pay the church afterwards to fix it because they couldn't bear the thought of not hearing this preacher. There wasn't enough room. And we see that with Spurgeon, he used to preach to thousands of people flocking along to hear him in the open air. And one of my favourites is uh, George Whitfield. You may not have heard of George Whitfield. He was in the 1700s, a great preacher used by God. He was friends with John Wesley and Charles Wesley, who we get a lot of our, our hymns from. And of course, the Methodist Church is based on, on John Wesley. But George Whitfield was a good friend of those guys and he was used greatly by God. People used to flock to him all the time. And you can read his sermons and biographies about him. And I was actually meant to be named uh, Whitfield George Radford after him by my father, except my mother wouldn't have anything of it. So otherwise I would have been up here today, Whitfield Radford, preaching to you. and might have shortened it to Witty or something. But anyway, so George Whitfield is a great preacher. And I just want to give an example from his biography of the appetite that people had for his preaching. He, he went from the UK back to um, America, back and forth preaching, and huge numbers would hear him in the open air. He used to be able to project his voice. And so uh, there's, a, there's a record from a farmer called Nathan Cole, and he wrote down going, uh, his experience of going to hear George Whitfield preach. And so this farmer records, Now it pleased God to send Mr Whitfield into this land, and I long to see and hear him. And then one morning, all of a sudden, there came a messenger and said, Mr Whitfield is to preach at Middletown this morning at 10 o'clock. I was in my field at work. 
I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and run home and through my house and bade my wife to get ready quick to go and hear Mr Whitfield preach at Middletown and run to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing I should be too late to hear him and took up my wife and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear and when my horse began to be out of breath I would get down and put my wife on the saddle and bide her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me except I bade her and so I would run until I was almost out of breath and then mount my horse again fearing we should be too late to hear the sermon for we had 12 miles to ride double in little more than an hour. There's someone with a real appetite to hear this preacher and it was amazing these times when George Whitfield used to preach. These huge throngs of people would come along. Thousands, they, they sort of used to estimate by uh, how many uh, square feet were there and how many people would fit into it and they couldn't count the actual numbers. And so they used to have numbers of where they think 20,000. They, they would actually um, pick the locations to do it where the voice would amplify up so they sort of try and find natural amphitheatres so that people could hear the preaching as well as possible for these huge crowds that would be coming. So God has used preaching repeatedly through church history to advance his gospel, that people come to know Jesus Christ through preaching. But these days preaching sort of comes under this idea of, oh, it's kind of outdated, it's a monologue, and, and that's not quite the modern thing. The postmodernism, we meant to have dialogue and we've all got our own story to tell. And so to get up there and have one person talking all the time. It's not an effective way of communicating. So we should have feedback in the church service. We shouldn't have one person up there. We should have more like Bible studies. And so preaching is one of those things that is minimised in some places today. But I think preaching is, is still used by God. We've seen it used in church history and preaching is still an important part of Christ's church and for a number of reasons. I, I drew up a list a little while ago of reasons why I think preaching is quite effective and something that you, you should have as part of the church because it brings something that uh, you can't do elsewhere, you can't do in dialogue. And some of the examples are you of course have the authority of multiple people weighing down upon someone when you preach. So when I stand up here and preach today and someone wanders in who hasn't been to church before and they see what's going on, <coughs> they then think, well this guy up the front all these people are listening to him. They're probably giving him some financial assistance. They aren't calling out and saying, I disagree with you. So they must be in agreement. And so the person that wanders in, they sit down and they think, all these people really believe what he is saying. And so, whereas if I was in a one-to-one -one conversation, of course, it would just be my opinion. But here I've got multiple people's opinion bearing down upon one person and it's quite an effective way of doing things. And that's why it's important to come along and support preaching every week, that you then add your weight to that sermon by coming along and sitting there calm and not getting up and saying, this is rot and walking out. By sitting there and listening to what's going on, your authority is coming down upon the person as well. Another way and thing that you can do in preaching is you can mount an argument. You can sort of gradually build up in a natural progression, whereas when you dialogue with someone, of course, they're interrupting and they're interjecting with times and, and, and you can't necessarily build up an argument. And so preaching is quite effective with that. You can sort of get one point, second point, third point and really hammer it home at the end. And preaching, I think, is very valuable for being able to do that. I can also talk in preaching about moral issues in a very confronting way. If I was to talk about something like pornography with one person on one-on-one, -on -one, they could get quite embarrassed and quite confronted. But I can speak about it to a, a, a large number of people and they think, oh, he's not specifically pointing to me, but they take it and board and they listen to what's going on and so you can be a lot more persuasive 
with people, whereas generally their pride would get backed up about some particular issue that you're talking with. They think that you know what's going on in their life and so you aren't able to talk about it in the same way that you can one-on-one and, so, and that you, you have to do one-on-one. In preaching, you can do something much more uh, confronting on particular moral issues. And then finally, the, the big thing with uh, preaching, of course, is that you can state facts that aren't open for debate. And you see that with the word preaching and the way that the people, preachers uh, talk in the Bible. They're crying out facts. These things that they proclaim aren't open for debate. They aren't open for dialogue. They aren't open to say, well, that's what you think, but you know, uh, that's not necessarily true. No, these are facts. And as a herald of God, you're told to proclaim these things as fact. They aren't to be resisted. They aren't to be open for debate and to be softened or changed or modified. No, these are facts. And so with preaching, you stand up and you proclaim facts to the people. This is what God says. What are you going to do about it? And so preaching, I think, has an important place still in the church today, just as we see it there in the New Testament with John the Baptist preaching and we see people following off after Jesus as a result of preaching, so we see it today. We see people following Christ as a result of preaching and I think it's something that we should continue to do even today uh, in this postmodern age where everyone wants to have dialogue and, and be able to debate things. I think there is still a place for preaching. Not that there's not a place for dialogue and talking one-on-one, but preaching has an important place in the church. But what do we learn from John the Baptist as well about his preaching? There's something we learn that's important. It's the answer to the question, do you preach once and leave it at that? Do you sort of preach to a group of people and when they're converted you leave it at that? Or do you preach and and if they don't respond you leave it at that? Well, no. You see with, with John the Baptist, he's actually preached this message once before. We see it back in verse 29. What does he preach in verse 29? The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he he expands on that. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John's already preached this message. Does that mean he's preached it to his disciples? He's preached it to those people who heard it there and so there's been no response so I'm just going to stop now. I've done my job. I've done my duty. No. What do we read in verse 35? The very next day, the next day, John was there again. He didn't give up. He was there again with two of his disciples and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, I'm going to change my message. I'm going to modify it. No, he says, look the Lamb of God. He points to Jesus and says, look the Lamb of God. Admittedly, the sermon looks a bit shorter there than than, uh, the earlier verses, but we may get a condensed version there from John the Apostle. He's continually preaching Christ as the Lamb of God, that Jesus is the answer. And the second time that he does it there, then it's effective and we see the disciples following off after Jesus. We should never be tempted to modify our message because we don't see results. John the Baptist could have modified his message. He could have thought, well, uh, people aren't getting it. Jesus is the one. I pointed him out. Maybe I need to change tact here and, and, and say that Jesus is something else so that people will follow off after him and eventually learn that he's the Lamb of God. No, preachers have to continually preach that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe they don't get it the first time you preach it. Maybe they don't get it the second time. Maybe they don't get it the hundredth time. 
But that doesn't stop you preaching that Jesus is the answer. He is the one that takes away the sin of the world. And so it's my duty here every week, I believe, to tell you that Jesus is the one. You may not believe for yourself yet. You may not believe that Jesus is the one who takes away your sin. But it is something that I will not, I will not stop preaching to you. He is the one. You have to believe in Jesus Christ as the answer for your sins. Otherwise you're in the danger of the fires of hell and you will be shut out from heaven. He is the one who paid for your sin on the cross. Believe in him. Trust in him. Continue trusting in him every day. This message doesn't change. It is continuously the one that Jesus is the answer. Have you believed in him? Have you believed in him for the payment for your sins? So that's the first way that we see that the early church finds out about Jesus is through preaching. The second way that we see that people find out about Jesus is, of course, through the witness of relatives, the witness of family members. And we see that in verse 41. We see uh, Andrew there in verse 40, uh, following Jesus. He's one of the ones that follows Jesus as a result of preaching. Andrew, in verse 40, Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. We see there a family member. What's the first thing he's done? He's spent the day with Jesus and now the very next day, his first thing he does is goes and tells a family member someone that he cares for and loves deeply. He goes and tells them and brings them to Jesus. We're sometimes tempted to think that we don't know enough to tell others about Jesus. Here is a guy who's been one day following Jesus and he's already telling others about him. He's already going to his family and and telling them, do you know that Jesus is the one? He is the Messiah. He is the one who can save us. And so we too, we we should be witnessing to our family. We have uh, opportunities with our family members who nobody else has. We often are living with them day by day. No one else gets to live with them day by day and witness to them on a regular basis. We have opportunities with them because we have been able to show them love for an extended period of time. And so they listen to us in ways that they never listen to a preacher. We have marvellous opportunities and we can pray for people who are our family members in ways that other people just simply cannot pray for them because they don't love them to the same extent that you do. They won't be as fervent in prayer as you will be for your family. They won't be looking for opportunities to share the gospel as much as you would be. We've got to make the most of the opportunity to share the gospel with our family. We see it happening there with the early church and we see the success of it and the effectiveness of it And so it is today. It's not just something with the early church. We have this marvellous opportunity to share the gospel with our family members. And so often that is the case, that they come to know Jesus through the witness of family. I'm an example of that. Thankfully, God was merciful and and I grew up in a, a Christian household where I had a mother and father who deeply loved the Lord and shared the gospel with me from a young age. It's from their witness to me day by day that I am now a Christian. I heard the gospel from family members and so we should make the most to share the gospel with our family and to pray for our family. 
The third way that we see people come to know about Jesus is through the witness of Jesus himself. And we see that with Philip, down to verse 43. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And so here we have an example of someone coming to know Jesus Christ through not their family, not through uh, the, the, the preaching of someone, but through Jesus finding them out himself. Now, do we see this happening today? Well, of course, we don't have Jesus physically walking around sharing the gospel with people, but I think we still do have uh, times where people have visions of Jesus and they, they hear the gospel from Jesus himself. And we see this particularly if you read stories of people in closed Muslim countries where there is no opportunity for them to hear the, from family or friends about Jesus. They have no opportunity to have the Bible for themselves. And often they will tell of visions where they, they had someone come and speak to them and they, and they clearly think that it is Jesus and it pointed them to, to Jesus Christ and they end up finding a Bible and becoming firm followers of Jesus Christ. Even this week I was hearing of someone who had that experience, who had someone and they really do believe it was Jesus Christ who appeared to them. And I know that we are often sceptical, particularly myself, because I've never had such an experience and I'd love to have such an experience. But we think that, oh no, it doesn't happen anymore. And, but we see it in the Old Testament, people time and time again having uh, God speak to them directly and we should never want to limit God's power. We should never limit God and think that he can't uh, come to someone in a dream or speak to them. And particularly when you see it, you know, these accounts of people who've had that happen and they then become strong and fervent Christians and they, they get Bibles and they really become great ministers of the Gospel. And you see that happen again and again and so I, I, I have a bit of doubt rise in my mind but I should never let that dominate me. If someone believes that it was Jesus Christ who appeared to them and I just listen to that and take it on board and I think we should pray for things like that as well. That God will be waking up people in areas where they have no access. That's not to minimise the fact that we should be going as, as, as ministers of the gospel, as missionaries, supporting missionaries, sending them over there so that they can hear the good news. But we should be praying that people will be struck, that God can be speaking to them, whether it be through visions and dreams and things like that, that they may hear the gospel somehow and be saved. And then the fourth way that we see that people come to know Jesus Christ is through the witness of friends, through the witness of friends. And we see that with Philip and Nathaniel. We see in verse 44, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. What does Philip do? Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so here we have an example of, us witnessing, of someone witnessing to a friend. We've seen that people witness to family members, but it doesn't stop there. We have many opportunities to witness to our friends that are around us, our work colleagues, people who have no, uh, no other Christian friends in their lives and, may have no, and they've never been to church. We have a marvellous opportunity to share the gospel with them. And we should be praying for our friends regularly that we will have opportunity, that God will be convicting them of their sinfulness and their need for a saviour. We have to make the most of those opportunities that we have in our lives and to share the gospel with our friends and pray for them that they will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. And so we see that with Andrew and, uh, no, with Philip there. And then the, the, the fifth way that we see that people come to know Jesus 
It's through the witness of the scriptures, through the witness of the Bible. And this is hinted at a few times when we see biblical terms scattered about with people. We see this in verse 41 with Andrew telling his brother, he finds his brother Simon and tells him, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ. And so there we've got a biblical term there. So obviously the scriptures have impacted these two guys and they've been looking for this Messiah. And so they know that uh, when Jesus comes along that he fits with the scriptures because the scriptures are there witnessing to them that this is what the Messiah will be. And so we've got a witness there. And then we see uh, other terms as well. We see in verse uh, 49 with Nathaniel. Nathaniel also must be studying his scriptures. We see in verse 49... Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, this is to Jesus, you are the Son of God. He knows that term, Son of God. He's been looking for the Son of God. And so when he sees Jesus, he recognises it. And then he says, you are the King of Israel. He knows his Old Testament. He knows that the King of Israel is coming. And then verse 51, Jesus uses a biblical term as well. When he speaks to these guys, we see in verse 51, He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He knows that these people have read Daniel 7 and and read that passage where it talks about the Son of Man being there, this mighty one coming. And so he says, you are going to see this. You're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so he speaks to these people who know their scriptures. They've had the scriptures witnessing to them. And so that's hinted at, but we see this most clearly in verse 45. We know Nathanael knew his Old Testament, and Philip did as well, because of what Philip says. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So we see there that these people really were expecting Jesus Christ. And so when he came, because they knew their Old Testaments, because they knew the testimony of the Old Testament, they then accepted Jesus because, as, as part of that. They had the witness of a family member, they had the witness of a friend, but it, the witness of the Scriptures was powerful and something that they've been following all their lives. And this is why we have to look to Scripture as the most powerful weapon that we have against the, the clutches that Satan has over sinners that the, the Bible is one of the powerful, most important weapons that we have against him. And that's why you see with organisations like the Gideons, they, they know that the scriptures themselves convert people, that the scriptures, people reading those scriptures are converted and become Christians. And so they make sure that the Bibles are out there as much as possible. They give them away free. They give them away to children. They put them in hospital rooms. They put them in the hotel rooms. And they have countless stories. You just get a Gideon out to speak and he'll be able to tell you all kinds of stories of people who were going to commit suicide. They get a motel room, they're going to commit suicide and the last thing they do, they open a drawer and there's a Gideon's Bible. And they pick it up, they open it, they begin to read and they're converted through the power of the scriptures alone. They become Christians and they repent of their sins and go on to live a new life following Jesus Christ. And so the scriptures are so important and organisations like the Gideons are doing a wonderful work and we should pray that they continue to do it. There was a time last year, I'm not sure if it's been recalled, in Queensland where they were wanting, the government was wanting to block them going into hospitals and things like that and that's a, it's a damaging work that is going on. We've got to make sure that we get the scriptures out there as much as possible and that's why we have to be scripture filled ourselves 
The best thing we can do when we talk to non-Christians, to our family members, to our friends, is quote scripture to them. Tell them that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away their sin. Verses like that are powerful and effective. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him may have life. It is such a powerful way of getting people to know about Jesus Christ and it invigorates them and softens their hearts and so we should be committed to having as much scripture in our hands as possible as our weapon against Satan and his hold over those we love. The scriptures are powerful and effective. We see it there in the church, in the early church, those people using the scriptures so that they end up becoming a part of that wonderful church that we are a part of today. And then the final way that we see people come to know Jesus, is through miracles, is through the miraculous events. And we see this in verse 48 to 50. Now you may not have have quite picked it there that it was a miracle, but it's a miracle with Nathaniel. We see Nathaniel has a bit of a doubt and we see that in uh, verse, uh, verse 46. So he's being told by Philip about, about Jesus and then he says, Nazareth, Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. He has a bit of doubt. And so Philip says, all right, you've got a bit of doubt there that anything good can come from Nazareth. And so Philip says, come and see. And so when he comes to uh, Jesus, we read in verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And then Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. That's the miracle, that statement there. Why do we know that that led uh, to to Nathaniel becoming a believer? Well, verse 49, Nathaniel suddenly makes this great declaration. He doesn't say Nazareth anymore. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then Jesus says, you believe. Why? Because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. It's because he said, I saw you under the fig tree. Now what's going on there? Why why is that a miracle? What was Philip doing under the fig tree? Well, people have made all kinds of um, ideas about what that could be, what he was doing under the fig tree. There is uh, references in in Jewish writings about studying the law of God under fig trees and so maybe he was doing his private devotions. Whatever he was doing, there was something going on between him and God. There was something that only him and God knew about is is the, the likely explanation there because when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, I know what you're up to under the fig tree, it just brings this marvellous change in, in faith and he just suddenly believes in Jesus. And that is the case with God. He knows things that no one else knows. And so when this miracle happens, Nathaniel just says, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. You, you've got to be the one because this is a miracle that I've witnessed. It's enough to overcome all that doubt I have about Nazareth. And I can, uh, I can sympathise with uh, the poor Nazarites, the, the people the, from Nazareth, because I, of course, come from the West. And so I recognise that uh, Campbelltown, where I spent a good many number of years, is a bit looked down upon and people say, oh, can anything good come from Campbelltown? You know, and, I mean, when you think about it, in the last couple of weeks we've had... Uh, word in the press about riots in Rose Meadow and I didn't live in Rose Meadow but the closest pizza hut that Jill and I used to go to is Rose Meadow Marketplace Pizza Hut. So whenever we got pizza we were going to Rose Meadow 
And then uh, some people in Campbelltown look down upon other suburbs and, and so Jill comes from the suburb of Ingleburn which is seen to be um, one of the better suburbs. But then of course Ingleburn's just a, a next suburb over from Macquarie Fields which is where they also had riots just a couple of years ago as well, major riots, not like the Rose Meadow ones, like really bad ones. So I know what it's kind of like to come from an area of, you know, we say, oh, the West, you know, it's not so bad, but yes, people look down upon it. And so it creates doubt in, in, in Nathaniel's mind there because he's got this sort of small town snobbery going on and he says, Jesus can't, the, the Messiah, he couldn't come out of such a place. He couldn't come out of Campbelltown. He couldn't come out of Nazareth. But no, we see here that when Jesus performs this miracle, that it overcomes all that small town snobbery. It overcomes all his doubt. And we see this happen today when you hear people's conversion stories. I love hearing about people's conversion. And you get some really interesting stories. You get all kinds of things said to them, the sort of first things that led them to Christ. And often people will report different miracles. People have uh, things like uh, cancer, The doctors say, yep, there's no hope for you and then the cancer disappears and it's one of those first things that says there is a God, I can't explain it. Who is this God who has healed me? And they start following Jesus Christ. And I I, I know a a young man who I heard his conversion story as well and he, he fell asleep at the wheel of his car late one night. He'd been out late partying and he was driving home and he fell asleep and he woke up as the wheel was turning by itself. And he couldn't explain why the wheel was turning, but he had gone along a really windy, bendy road, fast asleep at the wheel. And he could not explain why it happened that as he was on that road that the wheel must have been turning by itself. Who was turning the wheel? Well, in his mind, he said it must have been God. And it was the first step of him becoming a Christian was this miraculous occurrence. And as you hear testimonies, find out. All the people that you know who are Christians, always ask them for their testimonies and you get all kinds of interesting stories. And so this is one thing that we can pray for as well. We can't perform the miracles, just like we can't make Jesus come in a vision. We can't do that. But we can pray for things like that to happen. We can pray for our family and friends that God will shock them, that he'll wake them up, that something will happen. You know, that something you know, at work, might, a heavy object falls right next to them and they suddenly, oh, I could have died today. That kind of thing. I've heard that as well, that people just think of what could have happened at work today. Think of where they would have gone and it wakes them up and it leads them to Christ. And we can pray that for our family and friends, that that will happen. So we see many ways that people come to know Jesus. We see there's, there's five ways there that we've seen no, six ways, I should say. Preaching, family members, Jesus himself, friends, scriptures and miracles. What can we learn from this? Well, we can learn to use these things, uh, that they are not outdated, but we should also learn that there is not only one way that people come to Jesus. Sometimes there's a temptation as a Christian to think, if you don't have the same religious experience that I did when I became a Christian, then you're not a Christian either. And so we're tempted to think that everyone must go through the same sort of series of things that we have. If they haven't experienced a miracle, then maybe they aren't a Christian. If Jesus hasn't appeared to them in a vision, then maybe they aren't a Christian. But we've got to look at the early church here and see the different ways that people came to know Christ. And none of them were less of a Christian because of the different way that they came. Nathaniel gets a miracle. Well, that's great. I'd love a miracle. But, you know, we shouldn't think that he's better than Peter, who came... How did he come? He didn't, he didn't have Jesus come and address him directly. He came through the witness of a family member. Peter, the one who becomes the, the great pillar of the church, the early church, he came through the witness of a family member. He didn't come through Jesus calling him himself. 
He didn't come with some sort of miracle. He came through the witness of a family friend. So our experience is not the rule and we should also learn that, we, that the combination of approaches is a way that often people come as well. And we see this here. We see this particularly with the way that scripture is combined with different methods. Scripture is often the way. The Bible uh, is often used along with other methods that people come to know Christ. That people don't come straight away but they come through a series of events in their lives. They have a little bit of the Bible taught in scripture at school when they're younger and they forget about it for many years but then when they're in their 20s they have a family member who suddenly becomes a Christian and suddenly they remember back some of those Bible stories and so then that, that, it starts to work together and then a family, a friend at work becomes a Christian and starts telling them about Jesus. And so they've got family at home and then they've got a friend at work and they've got that, that nagging verses that stick in the back of their mind. And so it all combines to push them to thinking about their sinfulness and their need for a saviour. And so we shouldn't think that just one approach is the way. We shouldn't just leave it up to the preacher on Sundays. The preacher on Sunday, he's the one that's meant to convert people. He's the one who's meant to share the gospel. And if people are going to be converted, it's through the preaching. No, we don't see that in the early church and we don't see it today. God uses a combination of methods and he still does it today. And we should also get encouragement from this passage as well. How big was the early church when it first started? How big was it? Well, we've just got Jesus there walking around and suddenly we've got a preacher proclaiming who he is and then we've got two disciples following and then we've got a witness of a family member so then we've got three and then we've got Jesus finds out someone himself and then we've got the witness of a, a friend and then we've got... Uh, and so before you know it, we've got five or six people there but still that church is very small and sometimes we're tempted to think well, you know, the, the church here isn't that big. Can it actually further itself? Can it, can it actually make an impact on the community? Well, you look at this passage and think, here this is the beginning of the early church. Very, very small start. All these different methods working together, but very small start. There's more people here than that early church, that, those first couple of days. We can all be witnessing and we can see the power of God working with us. Pray for it. Start witnessing to your family and friends. Pray for them. Don't Bible bash them all the time, but look for opportunities that you can share the gospel with them. It's amazing what sometimes you'll get statements out of those family members who you think are so not interested in God. Suddenly they say something and you go, oh, better get onto this while it's, while it's hot. Be ready for those things. Be prepared to give answers for the hope that you have. So my last question for you then is, how are you going with these methods? How are you going with these methods? Do you support preaching by being part of a local church? Do you come along each week, not just financially giving so that I can deliver a sermon here each week, but sitting in the pews so that the authority weighs down on people? Are you making sure you're coming along each week to support the preaching of the gospel? Do you witness to your family? Do you look for every opportunity that you can? Or maybe it's been so many years now that you've kind of given up and you think maybe, maybe it's time for me to stop trying. I, I, I've prayed enough. It must, it, it's a lost cause. No, continue going. Continue going. Witness to your family. Do you pray that Jesus will be finding out people and convicting them even if they have no family and friends? They have no Bible in the house. People in Dremoyne who are probably surrounded by people who are non-Christians, do you pray that they'll be convicted, that they'll be just suddenly feel this urge, I need to get right with God and I'm going to go to that church down the road. I think they know who God is. Do you pray for that to happen? 
Do you pray for that to happen in, in, in countries in the world that have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you pray for that? Do you witness to your friends? Do you look for opportunities at work to share the gospel with those around you? And do you use your Bible as that great weapon for conquering Satan's grip? It is the tried and true method. God convicts people as his law is upheld to their, to their eyes. Make sure you're steeped in the Bible, memorising scriptures, letting the scripture impact your own life so that you're prepared to give an answer when people ask you questions. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this Gospel of John. We thank you for the great lessons we can learn from it. We thank you for the way that we can see your church growing in the beginning that you work, you have a mighty army working in different ways. We thank you that this is the case today as well, that we may sow the seed somewhere, someone else may water it, but you make it grow, Lord, and we pray that you'll be doing this. You have a mighty army, a mighty team, and we pray that we'll be continually sowing seed around us, constantly watering seed as it grows, and that we may see Dremoyne Baptist Church grow we may see churches in Dremoyne grow. We may see churches in Australia grow. We may see churches throughout the world grow in knowledge of you. We pray for preachers everywhere. We pray that they may be faithful and true in their preaching of the gospel, that they may not change their gospel because it isn't effective the first time, but they may continuously preach that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we pray this in his name. Amen.